Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we are joined by Jay Semaine Lockwood to discuss her book, Archives of Desire, the Queer Historical Work of New England Regionalism from University of North Carolina Press. Semaine is Associate Professor in the English Department at George Mason University and specializes in 19th century American literature and gender and sexuality studies. So many people driving around New England or reading or learning about it, no matter our age, are presented with an idealized sense of its history. This includes not just the feeling of the quaintness of the places, but the fiction about it, the collecting of antiques such as China, practices of colonial dress, and the restoration of colonial homes. Semaine's book first shows that this presentation of colonial America is primarily a product of the 19th century, particularly the late 19th century. But more important, Archives of Desire reveals the prime constructors of this colonial edifice, one which we may dismiss as old, male, and conservative. The prime constructors are women and queer. Semaine argues that in their meditations on New England's colonial past, 19th century women writers, photographers, and colonial revivalists presented the queer, unmarried daughter of New England as a figure crucial to remembering and producing U.S. history, crucial to that history itself. This is not what you thought a spinster was spinning. Semaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So there's lots to unpack in those general themes I just introduced. But before we get to all of them, what first brought you to this topic? What did it look like in its initial stages? Um, well, first, I should say this was a project that took a very long time. And one of the reasons that that was the case, it started out when actually you could not get all these materials that we now depend upon as researchers um, electronically. So it started in kind of um, fabulously and somewhat romantically in the dusty stacks um, with me trying to better understand uh, Sarah Orange-Jewett's The Country of the Pointed Furs by reading... Um, Which is a, a short story or a novel yeah, that she wrote? Yes. Say thank you. Yes, the country of the pointed furs, which is a novel, which is considered to be um, one of the key works of New England regionalist fiction, and also Sarah Orne Jewett, um, who was in a very well-known romantic friendship or Boston marriage with Annie Fields. She's also taken now by scholars um, to be representative of kind of queerness and it, its expressions, especially for women in the late 19th century. Right. So Sarah Orne Jewett's work as well, um, you, your entry point was the literary production of both of these authors. Yeah. So looking at Jewett and trying to understand what's going on in the historical moment. And what I found was a ton of material on colonial revivalism, on women's China collecting in particular. So that was kind of the, 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 when I saw all that going on in the uh, journals from the time in the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, Scribner's, all of which were literary journals of the late 19th century, um, it got me to ask a lot of questions about what were the connections between fiction writing that was regionalist, but also other kinds of practices like China collecting, colonial home restoration, um, and what did it mean that so many women, that this clearly was dominated by women and women writers? So that women were were not only writing this work that you had already known, uh, but were prime movers and shakers um, in the colonial restoration movement that was going on at the same time um, that you began to see um, manifest in the journals of the time in which these their um, literary productions were first written. Yes, exactly. And talk a little bit about um, that moment. Uh, this is after the Civil War. So did that 
how did that impact um, the desire or the move to look back at colonial history? One. And two, you do mention in the book um, how there was a movement, uh, the movement for colonial history um, began before, and it had something to do with the North wanting to set itself as different or maybe even superior to the South. So we have that going on a little bit before in the earlier 19th century. Then we have the Civil War. And that has an impact. And then we see the rise of this movement with these women. Is that right? Yes, yes. So it's important to understand that while um, many, particularly white Americans, middle and upper class Americans of the Northeast became very interested in the colonial period and in their colonial roots around the time of the centennial celebration in 1876, even though that's kind of when it became very, very popular it actually um, manifested itself in a variety of ways across the 19th century. I mean, in literature, you might think of Nathaniel Hawthorne and some of his novels. Um, Grandfather's Old Chair comes to mind. <laughs> um, right. you know, the idea that, that objects kind of um, embody history and can even speak history in a certain mm -hmm. sense or are haunted and have important um you know, narratives of American history to share with, with people in the present day. But also really there was a, a long uh, history of collecting in New England as well. So again, even though antiquing did not become um, visible, like the way that it is today, if you were to drive up Route 1 in, in coastal Maine, you would see lots and lots of different antique, you know, stores and this sort right. of thing. This really became popular in the late 19th century. Um and so, but still, there were some elite collectors working across the 19th century. Um, so that kind of answers the second part of your question. The first part, kind of what was going on after the Civil War. I mean, one thing, it's, I think many things are going, <laughs> many things are going on at once. But certainly, um, one thing that art historians in particular have talked about is the way in which uh, late 19th century Americans they began to kind of rethink their colonial past and they began to identify a little bit more readily with uh, revolutionary era elites. So they started to really kind of be interested in the British. Um, and so that's a lot about some of the, the class conflict going on in the late 19th century and, um, you know, increasing numbers of, of immigrants, I think, the kind right. of Anglophilia um, that we see. And certainly the, the women writers and revivalists, um, whose works I study partook in much of this kind of, you know, their practices were um, by and large elite practices, certainly kind of celebrating white inherited character, kind of racist kind of practices. Um, and as I argue in the book, even kind of had an imperialist dimension. Um, but their, I, their kind of expressions also were um, feminist and, as I say, capaciously queer um, and had a kind of erotic uh, component in many instances. Right. Okay. So as you said, there's a lot going on here. Um, we have post-Civil War people trying to figure out what this country is going to look like with the increase of immigrants yeah. and now free black people. Um, so what, what does it mean to be an American? And again, what will America look like? Um, and so people are returning to the past as one way of trying to figure that out. Well, what were we before and what is the through line here that we can claim? And when these women did it, these white, um, uh, women, uh, there's definitely intense racism going on. Um, their understanding or their preservation of the past is, is predominantly white. Although you do, you do complicate that too, that, that they incorporate, um, uh, there are African American women who are involved in this movement later on a little bit. Um, but also mm -hmm. that these white women are interested in, um, early colonial, uh, women, uh, British, uh, colonists who were captured by Indians and and made part of that society and so there's a there's a racialization that's that has an ambivalently positive valence to it possibly um so what uh drew them these women at this moment um these particular women who you talk about are living queer lives uh but by, by which you mean they're not focused around men most of them are living with other women um and their work does not revolve around other men but generating their own um uh, do, doing things by themselves with other women and with other women. What interested this particular group of people then in looking at the past in a new way? That's a really good question. I think that um, 
in part because they're they're kind of they are definitely part of this excitement um, in the 1870s and after this excitement about looking back and seeing kind of what has happened in the last hundred years, what does the United States kind of look at or look like? Um, one thing that's really important um, to what they're doing, I argue that these women are really very invested in thinking about a very specific kind of New England identity, that the, that the region um, has not kind of fallen away in their understanding um, we tend to really read late 19th century culture often with an eye to kind of its national articulations. Mm -hmm. But part of what I'm arguing is that, in fact, these women are trying to lay claim to an, uh, a kind of alternative role, if you will. You know, we, this is a period where we have, um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt talking about how, um, you know, it's every good moral white woman's duty to have a certain number of children. You know, many leaders, right. there's fear of white racial suicide. There's this fear of the rise of women's higher white women's higher education. What's going to happen to the white race, right? So there's a lot of kind of racist fear um, in, this, in this historical moment. Um, and there's something about the possibility, this, I believe that one thing's going on for these regionalist women writers of the late 19th century, they're looking back at the colonial moment, and, and it was a moment that's perceived as one that where there was a lot of possibility, like the nation might have been constructed in a different way. Right. In a way that might have allowed for white women to be more mobile, perhaps in franchise. You know, who knows the possibilities? But kind of looking back at that one kind of chaotic and exciting moment seemed to hold a lot of um, potential for these particular writers. Right. And you, you talk about how, how they, they saw themselves in the late 19th century um, as realigning with colonial forms of dissent against, mm -hmm. uh, you know, monarchical rule. So that, so this is a, the colonial time period being when the, 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 these colonists were, were, were forming a new social, uh, world, um, yeah, it's very much based on an older, older one, but but there's a potential for for so much that is new, uh, or a possibility of new uh, social formations, um, and and that is felt in the dissent against an old rule. And you talk about how these late uh, uh, late nineteenth century writers are picking up on that thread of dissent, um, and that uh, that it's that's, this dissent is part of a larger democratic experiment. Um, and that the work and lives of these women in the late 19th century show that this dissent meant not just uh, against a, 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 a king, uh, but more deeply, and I guess here's the part we're still sort of wrestling with, um, dissent against being ruled by men. And so that trying to find that women in, in the colonial era, era did have some agency that maybe was squashed by men, but, but it was still, it was still operative. Um, and that obviously these women are much more agentic themselves in the late 19th century and finding those commonalities that it was a dissent that was not fully realized because, well, men were still and are still in charge at that moment. Right. And I think part of, yes. And I think the part of one thing that's happening too, is that there's this idea of how does one contribute as a citizen? If the, if the dominant discourse of the late 19th century that the, 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 the middle-class or upper-class white woman is hearing is the way you contribute to the nation is by having children and by raising them in a particular way. Then where, I mean, it, there is, where, what does dissent look like, in other words? You know, yeah. and, and, and many of these writers were interested in kind of contributing, make actually their contribution is through work through the kind of production of history, through its kind of alternative forms of engagement. And these women, I think it's not coincidental that these women were, you know, at the same time interested in pursuing kind of alternative um, so social sexual kind of bonds in their own, in their own lives. Um, and one thing, I mean, this is not focused on in my book, but the research that I am doing now is kind of extending this further. And one thing I'm, I'm recognizing is that, um, 
these regionalists were very, very interested in the colonial period, as I argue in my book. That's the kind of a foundational idea there. Um, but a writer like Jewett and some of the other collectivities that she was a part of, they're even at, interested in a kind of longer history. Right. Um, they are also kind of claiming to kind of a, a, a kind of connection to um, white European history that goes back as far as the Vikings and, and kind of this idea of being mobile, being cosmopolitan, um, being a kind of dissenter, experimenting. These are, are, are ideas that are really important to the group of women um, that, I, that I look at in the book. And so they're really thinking of different ways to make history for themselves and also of how they may um, make that history. Right. And I think it's important to stress then you're not, you're not simply saying that these women are, are quote unquote, queering the past by inserting themselves in it, but you're actually showing that, that these, that women were at the center of the past all this time in ways that are much more complex and that we're only beginning to understand. I mean, obviously with the rise of, of women's history um, in the, you know, late sixties, seventies and eighties, um, it's all the beginning of this in the academy. Um, but there's so much more so that, again, it's not saying, um, oh, it was only in the late 19th century where these women were able to live these kinds of lives. And so now they're rewriting the past so they can you know, support their narratives. But actually, they're finding themselves and threads of their non-reproductive lives in the past. Um, and that that women's work in the past are are pivot points for more complex uh, kinship uh, formations. Um, and obviously we, I mentioned briefly about the captivities of uh, women by, by, by Indians and how that some, you know, didn't women and children didn't want to return to their colonial families. Um, and that this, you know, for better or worse is a kind of figuration of, uh, more, um, more branches uh, of a an, of a de of the democratic experiment, is that correct? Yes, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, once again, it kind of comes back to um, one thing that I think is fair to say of all the the regionalists who were really working across um, different kinds of cultural practices: fiction writing, colonial home restoration, China collecting. Um, and history writing, they were really interested in women's increased mobility in their own present. And they were very attuned to forms of mobility that women had either kind of had thrust upon them or kind of engaged in, in the past. And so, you know, to, and, and specifically like the colonial historian, um, C. Alice Baker, her uh, re really retelling kind of some of the first work on um, what happened to certain women who are white women who are taken captive from New England um, and taken to Canada um, by various captors, um, not just by Native peoples. But, you know, part of what her kind of history does is draws our attention to the range in ways colonial women could both affiliate and reaffiliate. Um, that they, you know, were through their various experiences in the colonial world, kind of rethinking um, with whom they wanted to affiliate. And it was across national lines. It could be, it was definitely across religious lines, racial lines. Um, and that, that there, I think there was already, my sense of it is there was definitely already uh, for C. Alice Baker in particular, the sense that that history kind of spoke to her own sense of wanting to affiliate um, in ways outside of the heteronorm. Right. So you, you talk about the formation of, of community among these women regionalists, um, artistic practice, uh, desire, history making all brings them, all three are sort of operating together and forming these communities, couples, uh, three people uh, or more. Um, and and uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, where you talk about how primary the primary summer vacationers in new england uh were uh, predominantly women at the time um and that they were interested in in visiting towns away from cities or out of the way places and so there's a kind of off the beaten path notion of wanting to rediscover something um or or re reacknowledge the importance of these places uh, so what what kinds of communities were they forming amongst themselves then at the in the late 19th century? Yes, that that kind of larger context of tourism is very important 
because in the period that we're talking about, there, there are certain very traditional tourist kinds of practices, like elite urbanites going to Bar Harbor and places like that, York Harbor. And many of those, you know, going to those kind of familiar watering holes, it was understood in the period as a way for a young woman to meet um, a man, you know, a man to marry. Um, so there was something very um, kind of traditional that kind of traditional narrative was part of, of kind of tourism. We have in the period uh, at the same time, a kind of emergence of what I would call a bohemian uh, notion of, of, of travel that um, was often dominated by women, both women travelers, but also um, women uh, kind of were in the majority when it came to uh, running boarding establishments, kind of taking other women in. Um, and this idea was that one would travel very slowly with an eye to becoming kind of intimate with the place. Um, and those who have studied the late 19th, late 19th century American culture may think that it only happens in Sarah Orne Jewett's The Country of the Pointed Furs, but it turns out that there were whole collectivities of women who were really interested in this new kind of way of thinking about travel. Um, so it would be only women traveling. Um, the way, I mean, it, it really, to get back to your, your question, I think, or maybe you can kind of refresh me. I mean, you're asking kind of what forms of communities did, did kind of the, this give way well, to? Yeah, yeah I mean, just the, the kinds of relationships that you're talking about among these regionalists. Uh, they're, the ones you focus on are interested in um, history making, uh, or, uh, right. but, but also the, history is an artistic practice. So there's definitely an aesthetic quality to most of the work. So I see it as a kind of mm -hmm. um, artistic uh, community among women, as well as a, a, a community that's interested in, in writing history or, or, or making history. Um, and then maybe those two come together in, in the collecting of China, but also the, the restoration of these homes. Yes. I think there actually, maybe we could think of it as um, there's a, there's a, there's a large, there's a, there's a fair size. I wouldn't actually, maybe not large, but there's a, there's a fair size um, collectivity of women writing and restoring and they know one another's work. And this one's kind of one thing that I show in the book there, they're, they may not be intimate friends, um, but they know of each other's work. They, you know, say things like, I think it's Mary Wilkins Freeman writes to one of the historians I examine. She says, Oh, well, I will, you know, I will use your late, I will use one of your latest books about colonial fashions when I dress up the characters in my fiction. If they actually understand, they reading one another's work, they're aware of one another's work and their common interest in history. So there's that kind of general sense of um, a collectivity. But then you have kind of interesting um, collaborations, and I'll give just one concrete example. Um, so again, Sarah Orne, Sarah Orne Jewett uh, and her partner, Annie Fields, live um, part of the year on the coast of Maine, and they um, cultivate a number of really important relationships with other with other queer women. And one of those um, families includes a historian, C. Alice Baker, the photographer, Emma Coleman, um, and the painter, Susan Minnett Lane. So these five women are all friends. And um, they decided because I'm, I don't know how they decided because I, you know, so much of this is not mm -hmm. available. The archive does not provide all that one would want to have um, about this. But basically what it seems happened is um, the five of them collaborated on a series of photographs for what was probably a private a tipped book, which means they took photographs, they staged photographs, um, had them developed, and then put them into a published version um, of Sarah Orne Jewett's first novel, uh, Deep Haven, which depicts um, two young women from Boston. Um, it's kind of understood as a proto-lesbian novel um, that they had that the two young women from Boston are experimenting with, you know, what it's like to live together and and to and to kind of see set up a household together. So the the idea that so th this is a very specific um, 
kind of, you know, this is a specific group that really brings together two families and a kind of project that puts both history making and also photography um, and also kind of the the rethinking of maybe not the rethinking, but but at least an extension of the thinking that happens in in Deep Haven, that they were kind of experimenting with things together. And because it likely that was just a, a, that was a book that was that was circulated between those two families and maybe some of their friends privately. It's hard to tell. Um, but so, you know, so the people are, so some of these women are actually coming together and doing projects together. Even. Right. Right. And um, the, that novel uh, is the version without the photographs is published when exactly? 1877. Okay. And it's, first novel. is it, and it's set at that time or in an earlier time? Um, it's set in its own okay. time. And again, I just want to remind people that, um, that it's not, it's again, it's not simply only this moment where this is a possibility, but you know, we now have records of, of women, um, living a domestic life together early in the 19th century, such as, um, the book, uh, charity and Sylvia, um, which, which focuses yeah. on a real, uh, same sex, uh, female couple who are, uh, I think it's in New Hampshire, um, but they're, they're at the center of the town's economy. You know, they're, they're, they're doing work. Um, I think, uh, uh, sewing, um, and other sort of homespun kind of, uh, activities, um, that are central to the, the workings of the town and that people in the town, uh, recognize their relationship. And even the word marriage or marriage like is used. So this is not, Fantasy, even though the regionalists are using fiction to explore history, um, they are, as you show in many other examples, such as uh, 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 Baker's writing of history, um, trying to find uh, a, a, so a trace of this past in the material world. Um, and I think that that's almost where where the interest in going to these towns in New England um, and trying to to as you say re-embody the past, live in the places where these women once were. Um, and of course, those themes are also explored in the fiction, but but in the actual restorations of the homes. And you know, I, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, my gosh, you know, most people think uh, that it's gay men who, you know, have really started, you know, the, I've been responsible for the preservation movement and no, oh, they take so well, good care of their homes. But I'm thinking, ah, 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 the women got there first, you know, and it's, it's true. Yes. And it's, yeah. <laughs> it, well, and it was, a, it was actually, a, there was a fairly big conflict. I mean, um, basically, I mean, women, many women had, had started these sorts of projects. Um, and I talk a little bit about Elizabeth Perkins, who, um, is a, is not a particularly well-known colonial revivalist. She and her mother restored a house in York. It's still there today. You can visit it. Um, and you can go to kind of old York historical society and look through her papers and this sort of thing. Um, she restored this space and, you know, she did it in a way that gave her pleasure. Um, and she did it in a way, in, in a way that, um, the men who in that period, actually preservation was becoming right. professionalized. And, um, Elizabeth Perkins reached out multiple times to, uh, William Appleton, who was the head of the society for the Pres preservation of new England antiquities, which is now historic new England. Um, and asked him if he would be interested in her home. And he was not. So there's this idea that there's the right way to, re right. to remake colonial history. And then there, so like the, the, the right way being the way that's becoming professionalized and gaining authority and that is male dominated in the period. And then there's also kind of the, the Elizabeth Perkins version, which is considered to be, uh, and what, you know, what impure, was impure? I mean, I combo. think what you mean is that the, that the Elizabeth Perkins updates to homes were also interested in making it livable in that moment, not just in making a museum piece out of it, but making it livable. And that's so fascinating to me that that would be a major difference because it making a home, a historic home livable um, in historic terms and modern terms that they almost become the same terms um, speaks to community formation and the house restorations are about opening up the doors, not erecting enclosures and that they encourage hospitality, yes. which is a, a notion that's tied to, to women um, and that they are shelters uh, for people rather than castles, you know, and, and it reminds me of you're bringing in this, the uh, example of the uh, garrison, which was a, a home in a colonial town where if the town was being attacked, um, everyone could gather. 
but it was actually one family's home, but it was one that was strategically positioned, I'm assuming, where everyone could gather. And so you, you, you make this, this, mm-hmm. this quite ingenious connection between the idea of the garrison and which is obviously central to the, to the preservation of, of these early towns in America to how women then thought about uh, preservation later on as making the space livable and open to, to various people uh, in the community. Right. It, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ba- Baker, um, Baker and Coleman and Lane definitely wanted their house to be a gar- to be a kind of a true garrison house and to bring people in. The same was true of Perkins house. Um, and so it was that they wanted it to be livable. They wanted it to be a shared kind of more of a, com- a communal space. I mean, not to say that it was communal living right, so right. much as that it was open, like you said, it was open to visitors. It was open to the public. Often there would be very big events like colonial teas held in these sorts of spaces. Um, which would yield whatever fundraising for new restoration projects uh-huh. or just kind of opportunities to get together and socialize and also kind of reimagine oneself as a colonial, which was something that many people found a lot of pleasure in then and continue to today. Right. I mean, historical reenactment continues to speak to many people um, as a practice. Um, but yeah. And the other thing too, was that, you know, Perkins was, and, uh, and many other women um, who were doing this sort of collecting, they also weren't kind of sticking just to one specific year that they were trying to return the house to, but rather they were kind of collecting materials across a generalized sense of colonial. Um, and so, you know, that, right. that also didn't strike. Yeah. And I, I think, professional, you know, professionals as the, yeah, yeah. Which <laughs> also speaks to a completely different understanding of how time works and history. And I'm, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but, but I just want to pause on this because you, you do mention that, um, at this moment, late 19th century, there's this sort of created ideal of the, of the New England town, white picket fences around a sort of central green when in actuality houses in early America were a bit more scattered across the area. And, and so I'm wondering how you think the, uh, women's part in this, um, rest, this period of restoration played into this ideal of a New England town, um, that I guess one could say was, was, you know, white picket fences gathered around a, a, a green is stressing the, like domesticity as the engine at the center of early America. Do you see a connection at all um, in that, in that people wanting to present the towns like this as, as maybe they're not historically accurate, but they actually get to the heart of, of the importance of domesticity in early America. Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely, I, I, I'm not entirely sure only because I, the, the, the people who were f- forwarding this notion that that it was a centralized village around you know around a green and everything was painted white those late 19th century americans and it, and it was it was both men and women who were interested okay. in this idea um they thought that was historically okay. accurate um that was part oh, even of it. better than they, yeah. they <laughs> right were, okay yeah, they actually were right because it's constantly changing what what people actually yeah. know <laughs> about the past. And I mean, you know, cultural geographer Joseph Wood, his, this is his, um, you know, kind of I- idea or his point that he makes that that they're really looking back to the early 19th century. Um, and this is another thing that's kind of fabulous about colonial revivalism is because clearly the colonial period, like how, how does one date that precisely? Right, right. I mean, you can, but it's very, yeah, very long. <laughs> and yeah. you can kind of... Yeah, you're right. You can bring you can bring yourself down whatever wherever works for you. So it has a kind of fabulous capaciousness that I think did draw um, you know, many revivalists. Um it was very malleable in a certain sense. Um, right. So, and again, that speaks to this idea of, of different understandings of how time passes or not passes. Um, and if we're still in a period of the past that we think we have succeeded or progressed beyond. So let's talk a little bit about the methodologies that uh, historical methodologies that these women were using to, to write and, and, uh, and to, you know, redo homes uh, and such. Um uh, basically you what one of the major differences you stress is that what they're interested in is in is not just documents um mainly because documents in the past didn't have their voices as much as men's voices um but they're also interested in movement um uh dance singing and and then of course an awareness of how space was used by women in the past and thus in the present who are in those same spaces um, so talk a little bit about the place of, 
of uh, materiality in the studying of the past and even movement and gesture and song and dance. Yeah, so one thing that's really important, one point that I, I make in Archives of Desire is that the women, these women who are making history often, I mean, the way that they shared that history was often not through traditional kind of textual forms. I mean, women would get together, there were like small kind of almost informal historical societies in the early years of the Daughters of the American Revolution, women would get together and do kind of these and report out on their individual research projects, which would be considered to have been amateur. But you know, right, that's right. only by the, the kind of measure of the move into professionalism. But that these would actually they would actually be performing history in various kind of performing history, communicating history in various ways. Sometimes it was through the kind of a little bit more traditional kind of lecture, but then, you know, sometimes it was through like holding, like I said, a colonial tea, you know, actually reenacting um, what you imagine colonial people would have eaten, how they would have spoken, how they would have interacted with one another. Um, it also, I mean, Cialis Baker did, did hold a kind of colonial ball in her um, one of the large rooms in the in the house that she restored, and the whole community kind of participated. Many of the community participated in that. So it, it's really kind of the one thing I'm trying to emphasize is how all it isn't all kind of the their practices were not all kind of focused on the textual. They were often really interested in dressing up as colonials and kind of feeling right. themselves inhabiting the past in a way that was very embodied. Um, and also collecting material objects. I mean, there was a lot of energy and kind of uh, passion for going out on the dusty roads of New England and seeing how many valuable pieces of China one could extract from, um, you know, a rural resident who may not have understood the value um, right. of that of that China. Yeah. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of all different registers in which this was a very embodied practice for, for the late 19th century women. Right. And that, and that there are values uh, of the past and histories um, that, that we have missed, or I should say men have missed because um, they have not seen or expanded their sense of evidence beyond the textual. And, and so when you say that these women were also interested in forms of historical reenactment um this is this is a complex um uh, mode of historical research that produces an immense amount of knowledge it's not simply let's dress up um and i and i so i, I think it's really important to to say that because because it's it can have this unfortunate um uh uh uh, right, right. Basically, people could think it's a joke, and it's just what you do with your free time. And it, and it, and and so, let's just talk of, about a few examples in terms of, in terms of uh, how the use of touch of an object, um, thinking about how an object was made, um, how it was used in the home, um, can can tune us into the lives of women um, who were using those objects in the past, or um, how, for example. Uh, Gender injustices um, cannot be read in text, but felt mainly through the body. And so how the need to imagine how a body felt in a certain space um, opens onto it a story of, of, of oppression that would be missed in, in a textual artifact. Right, right. So these, so these women, and, and I think maybe a good example is um, that even leads to... <laughs> Interestingly enough, a more traditional kind of find. Um, so you're right. So women are are actually enacting these things and and coming into uh, important, as you're saying, as you're emphasizing here, kind of really important historical kinds of knowledge and insight by way of the the kind of um, engagement with the material object. This willingness to kind of intimately engage history making, what I call kind of intimate historicism. This leads the historian, the historian Cialis Baker wanted to do a project where she told the stories and found out what happened to the women who were taken captive from New England in 1603-04 and, and taken to Canada. She did not know where to turn to. 
um, in terms of like what kinds of materials she would look like, look for. But she took a trip to Canada. She purposefully went the same route as the colonial um, man from Deerfield, Massachusetts, who had also gone to Canada trying to rescue the women. She went the same route. She went the same time of year, which was in winter, I'm pretty sure. And it wasn't until she saw all these portraits of colonial, the colonial French, and she really tried to physically identify with them. And she tried to kind of put herself imaginatively back into the historical scene of the, of the attack on Deerfield. And when she did that, she suddenly came to this realization that she could look in the archives of the churches of Canada and she would probably find traces of these captives. And she found an amazing abundance of textual information. So (laughs) this, I think that's, I mean, it's a great example because I'm not trying to get like, have it all come back to the textual always, but the idea of the kind of richness and significance of this, um, what we might call it a kind of imaginative engagement, embodied engagement, it, it, it out and of itself yields knowledge and it also kind of in some instances uh, informs new methods and new kinds of ideas about where to find the material whereby we might right. tell the story of the past, especially women's history. Right. So to get from one archive to another, which may be in a different country, you actually have to use your sensorium yes. rather than your your mind or your immediate associations. And you might think, oh, well, the story's over because, you know, there's no more traces in, you know, this town or this area even. But if you imagine yourself back into the lives of these people, you may be led to places you wouldn't have thought they would, there would be traces of them. And so again, it brings you back, it brings you back to the, to the, to the textual, as you say, in that instance. Um, But that there's all this knowledge of their experience um, along the way that comes from using or thinking about your body in space and time. Um, and uh, uh, again, it, it really does challenge our understanding of what of what history is, um, you know, that is history more a kind of register that's happening in the present that we need to become aware of, whereas as opposed to thinking about history as the past and it's all over, but that actually that it's here and it's sort of this, you know, this imposition of of something real, some some kind of impediment, some kind of materiality that is still shaping our lives. Um, and so this also, to me, opens up onto the, to the question of, of, of intimacy, um, as you, and you use the term, uh, is yeah. it intimate historicism that, um, describes this methodology? And I think the intimacy is, is really crucial here. So it's not simply, um, let's think about materiality as opposed to text, but that there is, there is a different kind of bodily intimacy that is, uh, functioning, um, and that this is tied to eroticization and sexualization. And so bringing us back to the kinds of relationships between these women regionalists, um, you know, obviously we're not talking about reproductive heterosexuality, um, but, but there is a place for, for sex. And I do mean sort of like getting off, you know, having an orgasm and all that, and that it's somehow found in um, uh, the engagement with um, materiality, uh, liminal spaces between past and present, um, gen- gendering that mixes femininity and masculinity, and that all of this comes together in sort of the touch and the care of objects in spaces. So can you talk a little bit about like how actual like sexual desire is at work in the history making? Um, well, one really good example, I think, is in um, some of the China collecting texts that I examine. So um, and, and, and it's, it seems, it's, it's very, it's very kind of, um, it is in no way an exact science. <laughs> it is, right? right? It's like the way that the erotic, the, the erotic kind of components, um, come up again across, they come up across all the different practices that I, that I look at to varying degrees for different practitioners and, you know, represented in, in a whole range of ways. Um, but, you know, China in particular is a very interesting case and some of the most striking examples of those kinds of moments of, of, of sexual ecstasy come up in the China collecting um, text, particularly in the work of Annie Trimble Slauson, um, who was both a short story writer and a China collector. Um, but in that particular instance, you know, again, we have a kind of embodied encounter with the material object. There's a lot of, um, 
you know, the kind of the, the, the pre-existing, the, the narratives about China collecting that existed before the late 19th century often um, figured, you know, China as kind of fragile and white and easy to break, very much like a kind of idealized white virginal sexuality, um, women's sexuality, you know, kind of sexual body. And, uh, right. and so this, this kind of, you know, so China kind of held this, um, potential, if you will. Um, but the, the women who moved into China hunting, uh, as it was called, I mean, they were really interested in kind of, um, the, ma- you know, like have really talking up and experiencing the kind of what they understood to be the kind of masculine aspects, mm. like the pursuit, the hot mm. pursuit of, you know, new pictures and plates and this sort of thing. And in some of these encounters, I mean, the, the women are, the, the women are represented them, we're representing women characters who are China collecting as kind of reaching climaxes, but in their discovery. So it's like they have this incredibly passionate experience where they have both kind of accomplished what they sought out to hunt down, but also having almost a kind of fantastical um, experience um, not only in the encounter with actual objects, but just thinking about these objects can bring about these kinds of right. ecstasies for the, for the kind of collecting women um, that, that I, that I examine. Um, so that's just one example. It comes up in a lot of different ways. And I think one thing that's important about it is that at least right now, I don't see any, you know, can kind of one formula for understanding what brings it about. It seems to kind of be very, um, you know, it, it, it seems like it's very, it's very kind of capacious. There's all kinds of different ways that it can manifest, but it's just a very heightened and, and eroticized intimate engagement with the past. Right. It's especially heightened in these representations in the, in the fiction itself or in the collecting guides. Um, but it is a, it is a, that is a representation of, of the place of these objects in these women's lives. And Obviously, people understand in any time period that that romantic partners can share property and that the care of that property ha- is eroticized between them. You know, I mean, this is this is ours together. We're going to make this better together. I mean, you know, a- a- everyone, I think, could f- and this is where the question of feeling comes in rather than simply thinking, well, sex is just this idea of penetration. And I know that intellectually. But if you use your feelings, you understand that desire between, say, two partners. Um, is expressed in the objects that they have around them and the lives that they make and build together. So I think mm-hmm. what these women are ch- tapping into is what anybody can uh, um, feel for themselves, but they're saying, okay, and this is actually crucial to how we not only live our lives, but understand how we live our lives. Um, and so it's not simply a, well, this is how they get off, right? Because it's not, it's not reproductive heterosexuality, but that this kind of eroticism is central to everybody's life. And we just haven't had a means to historicize it or write about it. But of course, this moment in time is a perfect example of how, uh, people found ways to do so. Right. That's a fascinating point. And it's really true. I mean, it's happening, like you say, it's not happening just in the fiction. It's happening in, you know, women, you know, these queer women who are, they're building, they're, they're re, they're renovating houses that they can actually live in together (laughs) with their, with their family members. And it is a kind of, I mean, in the, in the case of Baker, Coleman and Lane, it is a kind of, um, impassioned project that the the three women kind of undertake uh, together um, to create that environment. And there are other examples too, both in fiction, like Jewett's Deep Haven is another good example because the two characters in that novel, um, they renovate, they basically, they don't renovate, but they re-decorate um, more or less um, the colonial mansion that um, one of uh, that that Kate is the character her mother has inherited from a spinster aunt and they kind of remake it so that it reflects this kind of the kind of the the, the power of their relationship their personal interests and the, and that kind of their their kind of desire for one another and for the space because that's the other thing it's it's not just the desire between between people that is kind of expressed mm-hmm. in the objects, but also there's often a lot of um, desire for intimacy with the past that involves a single actor. Right, right. And again, is tied to to drawing, not only drawing our attention to material space, but, but preserving it and showing its importance um, in the structure of society. And um, 
I was I was reading the New Yorker. Alex Ross had an article about Willa Cather, and and you mentioned Cather a few times, but your focus is on the New England regionalists. Um, but but Cather is another example um, of uh, someone who's who was writing uh, characters who saw the land in ways that were more about you know preservation rather than conquering, and that it 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 this kind of it, what you would call, you know, um, uh, intimate historicism, um, opens up onto a larger question of ethics around the care of, of the land and the, the structures that humans make. Um, so that, you know, again, it's not only about the romance or the relationships between people, but between people and the world and how we, we care for it or destroy it. I mean, to put it bluntly, but I think that there is, there is a difference. I mean, that this opens up this mode of, of being and awareness of uh, using your sensorium opens up onto a, a whole new ethics of not just the past, but also the present. Yes. You know, and it really, it really can. And I mean, I think we see, I mean, I think that comes more to the, to the four, um, to to think about the specific, some of the, the writers that, that, that I look at. I mean, that comes, I think really to the four in the writings of Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins and also Charlotte Perkins Gilman, this idea that, I mean, there, so there's an ethics both to preservation, like that, that's very important, but also that there's a way in which by, through this historical practice, through this intimate historicism, one thing that it may yield is a recognition that there hasn't been much historical progress. You know, I mean, you know, that one one might like re that you may put on the costumes, you know, so to speak, you may put on colonial garb and you may enact a woman's position in a particular scene um, depending on what that scene is, maybe it's a very kind of pleasant domestic scene involving the taking of tea, but maybe it's a scene during the period of the Salem witch trials, as in one of, Gilman's plays, you know, or maybe it's a scene of kind of racialized gender injustice as in, as in Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins work. And there's this way in which what starts to come to the fore is also the idea that this historical practice may both yield and allow women to articulate the ways in which things haven't changed over time. Um, and that right. kind of has its whole own, right. That kind of ethical dimension. Exactly. Again, about this, that history is not progressive, <laughs> that things right. don't always get better. And that, so this reminds us of that, but also paradoxically, it shows that the, that an opening into thinking about the present in a new way is located in the past, that seeing the past or what we may have missed about the past opens up the present in a new way. So that, that, that this, mm-hmm. the, the circuit of progress might have to go through the past to come back into the present, to yield any new modes of thinking. Again, that, that things have been thought before and, um, uh, and modes of living have been different modes of living have been suggested and practiced before, but, but that we may have missed them. One of the reasons being that, that we need a, a, a more sensory driven, um, investigation into the past. So why don't we talk briefly, cause we're sort of coming to an end now a little bit about uh, overall your own, obviously your own methodology um, is is echoing some of the the the, the subjects about what you're writing their their methodology, and you talk about how this uh, the importance of materialism um, in in writing of history um, and affect and emotion um, was central to early women's history um, in in devising new methodologies and how how uh, or old methodologies now, as you've discovered, um, mm-hmm. uh, but how, and how that situated itself within the academy politically that, um, you know, were these legitimate modes of knowledge production? Um, and they still, you know, I mean, obviously they have much more of a, uh, of a, a foothold now in the academy, but, um, but, but there's still, there's still, uh, people who may resist them. I, I'm not sure what, 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 what would be your take on that? Yeah, that it's it's fascinating. I mean, in a part of me would have liked to have been even more of an intimate historicist myself, but I think I would have it would have yielded a it would have yielded in some ways a different product and not a product that could do the things that a book needs to do for one institutionally. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> that makes that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, yes. you know, so there was a limit to my own. In in a, in a sense, you could argue that the that my method was in a way limited. 
I, I mean, one thing I really try to do, um, I really try to think, I try to begin, and I understand that my work is only beginning to do this. I'm not making a claim that it's all the way there. But I really wanted to kind of, one, think across a real range of practices and to look at the similarities between them and kind of think about how women cultural producers are working across these different practices and what that might mean. But also to not, I mean, at least in English um, as a discipline, I would argue that we continue to be um, almost tyrannized by the individual author. And and some would disagree, I'm sure. But yeah. I, I do feel like that that continues to kind of inform um, much of what we do. So really trying to look to think in terms of kind of collectivities and kind of, um, you know, kind of cultural moments, what's, what's going on again, like the, the origin of the project, like it was an individual author, Sarah Orrin Jewett, who took me to the journals. But what I found there was actually a sense of a cultural movement of sorts powered by women, right. this interest in colonial revivalism and to kind of think across, think across all that. I mean, one thing I tried to do, I tried to really go to out of the way places in terms of like historical system, underfunded places, places where I thought I might find, you know, yeah, find so kind of yeah. odd things, strange things. I mean, that's one thing about this project that it, I'd never really um, got that much kind of financial support for the project. And that's, I'm not, it's not a complaint. That's just the, the kind of material reality of the, of the, of the situation. But in part, that's because I kept on asking to go to these mm -hmm. little podunk <laughs> places that actually aren't, you know, they don't have the same cachet. They don't have the same kind of recognized, you know, they're not recognized. Um, and so that's a kind of interesting kind of aspect of what I tried to do. Right. But also just to really read widely across things, to be really creative about what in the archive might be interesting. And the other thing is time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I said it was a, a project that was long in coming. It took a lot of time. And I do think that when we are thinking about our methods for new work, that, you know, thinking about the kind of the, the aspect of time, how much time spent, what sorts of time, you know, um, enable such connections to be made. Um, that's kind of another, another, another. Yeah, that's real. I mean, well, just, I love this idea of going to places that are underfunded because, you know, it reminds me of some of the su subjects um, of your book, you know, not knock on someone's door, see what they have in their own home. Right. You know, that, that, that <laughs> people, I mean, it, the, the traces of the past are everywhere. And, you know, if we were to limit ourselves to the, the most well-funded, you know, um, uh, archives, uh, then we're going to miss a lot of evidence. Um, but that, that, uh, it may be in your own backyard as well. It may be through, through the personal connections that you can make relatives and things like that of, of, of the subjects, you know, that you're studying, right. um, which also speaks to what these women were doing their own, um, intimate historicism. Um, but, and, but I, let's just sort of close a little bit with your, what you say in your epilogue. Um, you know, you say, well, you just said to me that, you know, you have to write this book in a way that essentially, you know, goes towards your tenure. And, and, but what you're also working towards, I think most powerfully is a, is a different understanding of historicism. And, um, you know, it's not that people may understand historicism as saying like, okay, let's provide as much context as we can to explain, you know, why, how this person was a product of their historical circumstances. And which, which and with women's history has, was for a long time meant how she was a victim of history. Mm -hmm. And, and you use the word uh, recognition. So, so it's, you're not interested in recovering, you know, these, these women who have been missing or oppressed, but, but recognizing the experiences across time and place. And that the, that these moments of recognition um, are through through a, a sensory understanding and investigation of the past, recognition moments that might happen in in archives that are underfunded or in people's attics or basements, mm -hmm. um, but that but that the recognition um, contains uh, historicism in and of itself that that uh, it it has a world within it. And um, we just need to better be able to understand how worlds were made through such moments before and how understanding happens through moments of such recognition. So how would you explain then the, the difference in what the kind of historicism you're working towards in terms of using moments of recognition versus moments of recovery? Well, I think the the, the recovery model is a little bit 
in my in my view, it's a little bit too much of you know I am somehow uh, occupy a more cr- progressive place in 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 history as a right. modern. And it's all better now, right? Too. Yeah. yeah, and I have this insight. I can more fully understand where they in the past went right and where they went wrong, and I have a kind of more fully developed sense of ethics and you know. What I'm really interested in the ways we are the same or the ways that, that things that happen, ideas that people grappled with in the past resonate across our own time. The limits, the women I study, they had very profound limits um, to the, some of the things that they, they thought through as measured by what would be considered today to be, you know, a just um, world, but I, you know, consider a just worldview. And at the same time, you know, what are the ways in which we today continue to struggle with the same questions about white privilege, right. imperialist, you know, prerogatives, the way we make history, the ways they may reinscribe certain forms of power. So I, I'm really interested in, in thinking. So both looking at, a, at all kinds of different objects, doing what I kind of, like not only close reading, but close researching, like following up on all kinds of weird, <laughs> weird things that I find and giving that the time, but also really more broadly speaking, thinking about possible similarity and stagnation even across time rather than, um, you know, kind of occupying this, this kind of, this kind of notion of, oh, I'm very progressive and I I can really look back and understand. I don't think feminism and historicism need to be at odds with one another, but rather that historicism may need some important um, renovations itself. Right. Renovations and, and, expansions that this would actually expand our understanding um of historicism and and of of the past and its continued impact on the present so we have to end here um do you want to just briefly just tell us what you're working on now or if uh, one of your future projects that speaks to these themes sure um so the the book project i'm working on right now um is called queer roots and it's looking at the ways in which um Women in the late 19th century. Right now, it's it's growing out of the first project. It is predominant. It's it's focusing primarily on white Bohemian women working out of the Northeast. But and we'll I'll see how that expands. Um, but it's really um, a project that thinks about the way women's are imagining their traveling, the way women are imagining traveling in the world, and the way that um, this, a kind of emerging community of queer women are claiming for themselves, you know, historical roots. And by, I mean, kind of like, you know, looking at the, the second kind of second age of empire, the, in the consolidation of like, you know, the oh, U S and England and, and France yeah. and even Scandinavia, kind of the ways in which a certain kind of racialization and understanding right. of movement in the world all work together. So that's the play with roots and roots. Um, right. <laughs> we'll see if the that's imperialist, <laughs> the imperialist queer. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so we'll have to end there. Um, our guest has been Jay Simane Lockwood and her book uh, from University of North Carolina Press is Archives of Desire, the Queer Historical Work of New England Regionalism. Um, Simane, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. I had so much fun. Great. 